to Peace in Their Time, Episode 64, The Hongjian Emperor. Where I left you last, the bad guy had won the day and had become the master of China. With nobody left the country that had the courage to face Yuan Shikai and his army down, he was free to deploy said army across the country to cement his new authoritarian regime out in the provinces. Where once this would have incited determined resistance, most local authorities had been cowed enough by the spectacular failure of the Second Revolution that they turned towards cooperation. It wasn't long after the defeat of the Second Revolution that elements of the Beiyang army were stationed in all but six of the core Chinese provinces, the exceptions being the provinces in the southern third of the country, which was going to be important. Once this was completed and his troops were camped out, he started in late 1913 to begin shuffling the provincial officials, much in the manner that the old Qing government had done when they were able. He stopped short of dismantling local rule entirely because that would have inflamed yet another rebellion just as he was getting settled, and the government in Beijing was not yet capable of shouldering such a large burden just yet. Through 1914-15, to 15, waves of appointments were dispatched from the capital to the countryside, and in doing so brought a degree of centralized control that would not be seen again for years. But unfortunately for the nation as a whole, the benefits of this were lost on a great deal of the populace. Yes, there was peace, but it was backed by a repressive military force. And yes, the government was for the moment stable, but it was returning to the haughty officialdom that was wholly at odds with the progressive hopes the population had after the initial revolution. This perception was not helped at all in that, as a byproduct of the centralizing reforms, many of the upper and middle classes of the provinces suddenly found their new prominence after the 1911 revolution snatched away from them. They had started getting used to being active political participants, albeit at a level that, that kept them close to home, but after a brief year and a half were being superseded yet again by appointments from the capital. Another source of unrest was in the suppression of the KMT as a visible force in Chinese political life. Uh, this was something pretty much everybody expected. After all, their leadership had lost badly what could only loosely be called a war and had too large a potential base of support to merely try to bring to heel and co-opt into the regime. But the suppression didn't happen immediately, as the political wing of the KMT it put on a show that it had no part in the military uprising, which was a fiction that Yuan only entertained long enough to allow the legitimately elected National Assembly time to formally confirm him as president. He had, after all, been still acting in the post as part of his ad hoc deal with Soon back at the start of 1912. Now, he was constitutionally the true president and even that was only secured by another round of bribes and a few assassinations to intimidate the rest. With that perfunctory bit of legalism out of the way in October 1913, Yuan was free to dispose of his beaten opponents in the National Assembly. So in November 1913, the KMT was officially dissolved as a legal political party, and their representatives in the government were removed. Its members were officially branded as insurrectionists and enemies of the state. Remember that the KMT was by far the largest party in the National Assembly, and with their removal, that institution was effectively neutralized. The only representatives left in this rump parliament were Yuan's political allies or those on his payroll. By the early months of 1914, even this modest group was advised to return to their homes. Yuan had things well in hand on his own. 
And by well in hand, I mean Yuan started cracking down. The repression was marked by thousands, maybe even tens of thousands, of executions and murders, with more imprisonments on top of that. Press censorship and secret police also started rearing their ugly heads. All in all, the usual array of tyrannical methods to destroy one's enemies and provide a warning to any prospective future ones. This furthered public discontentment with the government and undermined its legitimacy still more. But Yuan wasn't done in his government overhauls either. He had the representative assemblies at every level dissolve, not just at the provincial level, but all the ones under that as well. This was quite the turn of just a little over a half year earlier when Yuan shrank from such steps. But he struck at just the right time, as with his army quartered all across the country and his terror smashing his adversaries, the local elites didn't muster the courage to oppose him. Even still, observers did note the anger among the wealthy and the educated, as they had just been reduced back down to subservience less than a decade after the Qing had belatedly granted them their freedoms of association. And now Yuan ran into the hard part, actually managing his newly empowered state. For the first couple of years, domestic opposition was weak, again likely due to a lack of viable opponents and a populace tired of disorder. His centralizing efforts made the state solvent again, which meant the foreign loan in 1913 would be the only necessary one while he was in power. He pushed for education reforms and even spoke of increasing the participation of the elites in bourgeois and government again. Of course, this time they would be bound to his guidance. But problems from within and without worked against him. First was a lack of success when dealing with other world powers. He already had to deal with foreign agents, especially from Great Britain, as part of the financing he had received. And in 1914 and 15, when the interest on the loan he had taken out started coming due, the British were uninterested in letting him off the hook, which meant that the careful solvency he had achieved went right out the window. He attempted budget cuts such as demobilizing as much of the National Army as he could get away with, though that had the byproduct of flooding the provinces with unemployed soldiers. The British, supremely satisfied with a stable Chinese partner to work with, were uninterested in how fiscal problems might undermine a fragile regime. They simply wanted payment and expected Yuan to figure out how to get it while still keeping his position in Beijing secure. He was also conspicuously unable to regain administrative control of Mongolia and Tibet, regions of China that had seized a great deal of autonomy in the midst of the 1911 revolution. Those regions continued to be playthings of the Russians and British, respectively, and he couldn't muster the strength to regain the provinces in the face of their protection. He may have controlled the core of China and the vast majority of its population, but he wasn't able to regain the initiative from foreign interlopers, much to the disappointment of the increasingly nationalist intelligentsia. Closer to home, the dislocation caused by first all fighting and then the repressive campaigns to root out anti-government dissidents caused an increase in banditry. Turns out, if you have a bunch of refugees and demobilized provincial soldiers running around with no prospects, many might just start looting the countryside. Bandits had been a traditional off-and-on problem in China, but what concerned the government was that this wave was oftentimes inspired by the revolution and hated Yuan specifically. And the KMT might have been outlawed, but its supporters and informal networks of communication remained intact and were supportive of these groups. From Japan, Soon and his agents would spread their influence. In one notable example, Soon secured the support of a bandit known as White Wolf, based out of the Henan province. He raised an army that fluctuated between three to 10,000 strong and struck out at neighboring Anhui province, 
provoking authorities in both regions into cooperating to chase him down. He then led his army west towards Sichuan province, with an eye towards establishing a base in the west of China proper, seemingly just far enough from Yuan's grasp. The bandit army was repulsed, though, and they turned towards Shanxi and Ganzhou, before finally disbanding in defeat on the way back to Henan. The bandits may have been beaten, but hundreds of thousands of government soldiers had to chase them across five provinces over the course of December 1913 to August 1914. It was an embarrassment to the regime and a demonstration to how far its effectiveness went. There was also the little issue of managing his subordinates. His chosen vice president, Li Yuanhong, was easy enough to manage, and despite his prominence during the 1911 revolution, he had no power base of his own. Besides, he had helped Yuan out during the second revolution against the KMT by welcoming in the Baiyang army into Hubei, so he had made his bet. The officers of the Beiyang army, though, were a different story altogether. There were two leading figures in the army that are going to be big deals very soon. Duan Cherui and Feng Guozheng. Both men were among Yuan's hand-picked officer corps within the Beiyang army and had kept in contact with their old commander when he had been forced into retirement before the revolution. The two, though, were also rivals for power, and their shared motivation to support Yuan stemmed from an inability of the two to get along, nor be able to overthrow the other entirely. Yuan also probably found it a rude shock that he couldn't get rid of Duan and Feng either, as they had spent his time away before the Double Ten Revolution, each solidifying their own factions of the Beiyang army. So he might be in command, but the troops expected their chosen officer to be well rewarded, as that meant they too could become rewarded as well. This was the start of the Warlord-era system, where the success of a high-level commander meant they were obligated to provide commensurate rewards to their subordinates. Which, yes, did lead to a feedback loop of warlords needing to take more and more in order to keep their armies happy. Yuan might have been stuck with Duan and Fang, but he did make efforts to weaken their positions and stoke the tensions between them. He made Duan Minister of War, a position that supposedly oversaw the nationwide military and thus drew his attentions away from his own faction in the Beiyang army. Duan would try to overcome this by pressing for army reforms that would consolidate the scattered provincial armies in the country closer under Beijing's control, and ergo, his control. But these efforts weren't terribly successful. Mostly, he was left trying to keep his own network in the Beiyang loyal to him. His position right in the middle of the Beijing government, though, would have some fringe benefits, and he began expanding his horizons outside the army. Feng, on the other hand, was initially made governor of the Zhili province, which, as the one which contained Beijing, was important, but it also kept him out of the national government. Though, close enough to it, that it didn't feel like a demotion, in theory. The Second Revolution also gave Yuan an additional opportunity to get Feng out of his hair, as he was first placed in command of the expedition to put it down, and then transferred to be governor of the Jiangsu province which is the one that contained Nanjing and Shanghai. This did get him out of the capital, but also allowed him to expand his power base in the most economically important area of all China. Feng set to work installing his people in positions of influence, and local officers and officials flocked to his banner. The region would serve as a handy home base in the coming competition of warlords. A heavy blow to the stability of Yuan's regime came in January 1915, when the Japanese government approached Yuan with a shopping list that was referred to as the 21 Demands, 
it was a big list, with some of the important bullet points being transferring the formerly German interests in Shandong province, which the Japanese had captured in the early stages of World War I, another barring China from giving countries other than Japan any new special interests in their country, and another also placing Japanese officials in controlling positions of China's financial and internal security ministries. This, understandably, was asking a lot, and Yuan leaked the demands to the other world governments in order to make the demands public knowledge to world opinion. The Japanese had hoped to keep everything a secret, assuming that every other country would see this as a naked power grab on their part, which was a correct assumption, as every other nation reacted with disgust at the Japanese, taking the opportunity of Chinese internal weakness and the distraction of a global war to turn China into a Japanese colony in one fell swoop. The Japanese, for their part, backed down from the most egregious demands and asked only for the German interests in Shandong, and with an expansion of their own commercial interests, uh, specifically in Manchuria. For Yuan, who was in no position to fight a war with the Japanese, this was more palatable, and the agreement was made. This was also a very dangerous time to get into a scuffle with the Japanese anyway. With all of the West firmly focused on the Great War that was escalating in Europe, there wasn't anyone around to stop the Japanese if they so chose to launch another war of conquest against China. A shred of good to come from the situation was that Japan succeeded in arousing the deep suspicions of the U.S. and Great Britain, who now saw them as a legitimate and active rival in the region. For Yuan, however, the immediate aftermath was more severe. He had appeared to sell out Chinese interests in his first major test with a foreign power, and failed to regain authority in Shandong, much less discourage obvious Japanese designs on their country. With failure abroad in a domestic situation based only on force, Yuan cast about for some solution to shore up his government. His solution was, uh, a little too orthodox, and was the really big thing to start working against him. You know how I said last episode that Yuan's solution to being boxed in was to get more conservative? Well, in the face of new challenges, he was going to double down on that mindset. He began making noises that he would declare himself emperor of a reborn Chinese empire. Yeah, the guy who betrayed the last emperor and turned all the warlord on the Republicans in the span of two years, he was going to start up a dynasty of his own. Now, this in some ways wasn't that crazy, although overall it was really crazy and obviously not a good idea. But he did have a definite legitimacy problem, and there was no real ideology driving his government. And he was putting old imperial practices back into place anyway. I suppose the idea was that he might as well add a little bit of the imperial mystique to what he was already doing. Heck, it might even kickstart some fake nostalgia among the populace for a time from long ago when China was the strongest power in the world. He started having his administration openly discuss the idea towards mid-1915 as a means to get people used to the idea, and in August started actively pushing it towards his subordinates. Out of all the things that could have sparked actual opposition to Yuan among his subordinates up to this point, this was it. Distressed camel, meat straw. The repression they could do, the extrajudicial killing was fine, even selling out to foreign powers was doable. But this was too much. The late Qing administration had thoroughly discredited the notion of a divine ruler among the people, which meant taking this step wouldn't provide the legitimacy that Yuan was desperately casting about for. 
imperial rule by the end was seen as a backwards institution and even the cause of China's international weakness. Returning to it at this point would be a fatal step back. And Duan and Fang both told their boss this to his face. And for a time in 1915, Yuan held back from taking the fatal step. But this was an idea workshopped over the course of a year, and he kept coming back to it. Remember, he was a man suspicious of all the liberalization of society that had taken place since 1911. He was getting on in his years, and he yearned to turn back the clock to happier days, when subservience was much more the norm. Yuan also saw republicanism as the source of his problems in dealing with the foreigners that were ruining his prestige so badly. He looked abroad to the various republics set up all across the Western Hemisphere south of the United States and saw a pattern of foreign interventions among weak representative governments and determined that the same shouldn't happen to his nation. Which, you know, good point, bad conclusion. And while powerful generals like Duan and Feng warned against the move, the terrorized populace started falling in line, making performative noises to Yuan to take the throne once his intentions had been made abundantly clear. Under the surface, though, opposition to the move was nearly absolute, and disillusionment with Yuan's government was getting to a similar spot. But he did the ding-dang thing anyway, and in December 1915 made himself Emperor of China, naming himself the Hongjian Emperor. Honestly, the act itself might not have mattered, as by the time he actually committed to doing it, he was already facing armed revolt. Word had been spreading for most of the year what he was planning, and this time everybody was pretty well geared up to get a piece of him. The distant southwest province of Yunnan, along the border with Burma, modern-day Myanmar, moved first on Christmas Day of 1915 under the banner of the National Protection Army. Yunnan had a slight advantage in that they were one of the few provinces that wasn't garrisoned by Yuan, and hence their preparations against the regime had been able to be made without any obstructions. They also attracted the support of northern officers who had decided they were through with Yuan, who began to organize for a coup in Beijing. The Yunnan army began its efforts by invading the neighboring province of Sichuan, which prompted Yuan, who had not taken the rebellion seriously at first, to dispatch a force down south. The Yunnanese troops had come for a fight, though, and despite being badly outnumbered, the rebel invasion force was only 3,000 men. They were trained well enough from the Qing days and took advantage of the absolutely abysmal terrain in that part of South China. Think jungles, mountains, and sometimes jungles on top of mountains. In addition, all that internal dissension against Yuan broke out in Sichuan in the form of a bandit guerrilla movement that further sapped the government's resources in the region. While the Yunnanese army didn't drive Yuan away in defeat, the stalemate between the small southern force and Yuan's much greater army demonstrated again that the government's forces were far from invincible. This was just as good as victory in the field as the Sichuan authorities switched sides in March 1916 and joined with the rebelling provinces. And that wasn't the end of Yuan's troubles. Remember how old Sun Yat-sen had fled to Japan after the Second Revolution? Well, he still had enough friends there to arrange for a small army to be assembled in Japanese-occupied Shandong. His efforts were sadly ineffectual, but he was still making an honest effort to restore the Republic. Soon himself was back in Shanghai at this point, looking into an alliance with the restless southern warlords. Meanwhile, small detachments of Sun supporters started making landings across the Chinese coasts. And the Japanese friends came in handy as well, and money from Japan started flowing in to finance Yuan's adversaries. 
This wasn't quite an altruistic gesture on the part of the Japanese, though. They saw Yuan as a British client and were solidly against his centralization policies, which frustrated Japanese efforts to spread their influence region by region. The removal of Yuan would help secure their position in China and would open the door to increase their influence in Manchuria especially. Speaking of which, quick digression. Manchuria at the time was dominated by a strong man named Zheng Zhuolin, who I mentioned briefly in the Japanese episodes. A sometimes bandit, sometimes mercenary, sometimes army officer. He had put his private army at the disposal of the local Qing governor in 1911, and when that regime went away, Yuan installed him as the leader of the whole of Manchuria. Zheng would stay loyal to Yuan, but only just, and would work tirelessly at building up his own army and managing Manchuria as his own private kingdom in the north of China. He is shortly going to be a big player. For Yuan back in Beijing, though, the situation very quickly unraveled. The opposition did carry with them many of the same problems as they had back in 1911, namely no real plan of action besides getting rid of the sitting emperor and protecting provincial autonomy, but also like 1911, the momentum was so far against the central government that such problems didn't immediately matter. More provinces to the south declared independence. Feng, still down in Jiangsu province watching the situation develop, came out against Yuan, but declined to join with the southern rebellion. Instead, he drew what powerful leaders that were loyal to him and began laying the groundwork for a post-Yuan world dominated by him. Bowing to reality in March 1916, Yuan declared himself no longer emperor. But the damage was done. The provinces now had a wider opening than ever for autonomy, and Yuan's prestige was shot. His regime and his health crumbled. Duan, in April 1916, assumed the office of premier of the National Assembly. Not exactly the most prestigious posting since Yuan wrecked the assembly, but it was a national-level leadership position that placed him in control of the government without having to go through the unpleasantness of actually removing Yuan. That was a kind, though meaningless, gesture, as Yuan was entering his final days at that point. Amidst his regime rapidly being replaced with the competing interests of a half-dozen power centers, Yuan died of natural causes in June 1916. And no, really, they were natural. He had a blood disease. In the span of five years, he had transformed China as his own man far more than he could ever dream as a functionary of the Qing. It's too bad that transformation was in the opposite direction he intended. Instead of pulling the nation together, his time and power set up the conditions for everything to fall apart into a free-for-all. Duan would make an attempt at preventing that, recalling the National Assembly and confirming that the Constitution would again be in effect. Li Yuan Hong ascended to the office of president as per the rules of that constitution on Yuan's death, although that had less to do with procedure than it did Li not having an army to threaten Duan with. Li, though, would take the office seriously and was the one who took the initiative to wind down the civil war now that Yuan was gone. On June 30, 1916, he called for a peace conference in Beijing and ordered the Beiyang army to disengage from the rebels. The important thing for everyone at that moment was to reconfigure a semblance of national unity. Sure, Yuan had to be removed, which justified all the rebelling going on, but now they all needed to get on the same page before their disunity would destroy the nation. By mid-July, the rebellious provinces had canceled their declarations of independence, and it appeared China had reset back to early 1912. But some things couldn't be put back together again, 
and now there was no uniting figure like Yuan to step up. The dictatorship might have centralized China like no other regime would be able to until after World War II, but the process of doing so had left the nation badly scarred. The ideals of revolution, prospect of positive social change, had all been cast aside. Naked force carried the day, and now no one man held a dominant position. The leaders of China in mid-1916 were all patriotic nationalistic men who wanted to empower their nation. But they lacked vision and an ideology to carry that goal out and inspire the nation. From here on out, China truly becomes warlord China, a mess of competing officers seeking to unite the country on their own terms at the expense of each other. If you thought the past three episodes were a grinding, dispiriting affair, you really haven't seen anything yet. Join me next week as the heirs of Yuan Shikai turn against each other. I'll see you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.